Welcome to another episode of the award-winning radio show and podcast, Dr. Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally here. We're here, and we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today we've got a great topic. We do. And today's episode will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Back for another episode is Angela Ballman, an outstanding young pharmacist that is a really a wealth of knowledge. We're talking about over-the-counter medications. And the astute listener will remember, in the first of these two-part series, we talked about Tylenol. We talked about non-steroidal medications like Motrin, Advil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we finished up with Benadryl for the most part, those those top three things. Yeah, those are kind of the big three, but you'll notice if you go into the store, there's a lot more stuff. There's a lot more. A lot more aisles, and we're going to try and dive into some of those aisles and figure out how we should attack problems that we might be trying to treat over the counter. We're going to do everything from cough and cold to constipation. It just doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> I love it. You so. know, in our in our last episode on this, we talked about how many over-the-counter medications there are. Yeah. Uh, to your point of how many aisles they are, and it is overwhelming if you just walk into one of the common retail pharmacies. Oh, it's. I mean, when you go in there, either with a symptom or even sometimes, I'll go in there. I'll know what I want. How in the world do I find it? There are so many choices. And uh, I'm, it'll probably make me sound like an old boomer. They're very expensive. Many <laughs> of are. many of the common things are very expensive. That's true. So I think we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the side effects. We're going to talk about safety, when to use them, when not to use them, uh, and when to call primary care docs like you when something's not working. Yeah, I mean, that's always one of the big underlying questions. And, you know, you get this on call, too. I mean, when you get a phone call, it's it's really hard to say confidently that the problem you're having is not a big deal. Right. Right? It's easy for me to say, we've got to check this out and figure it out, and Mm -hmm. then we'll be able to figure out, especially with a physical exam. It's hard for me even, and I'm sure it's hard for a patient to say, I know this is not something that's dangerous. I'm going to try it over the counter. So that's hopefully one of the things we can flush out Mm -hmm. as well is to what extent you know, should I try something on my own? Give give it a try yeah. over the counter, and then when to seek out medical help. You know, I'll bet listeners would be surprised. You tell me if you think I'm wrong, but a lot of times I want to know what failed. I want to yeah. know what over the counter medications you took that didn't work, because that's going to tell me something oh, uh, about maybe the direction that we should go. So sometimes that's part of the diagnosis. It that rash didn't respond to a steroid cream or something along those lines. So it's important uh, that we get that information. Right. What failed and how much of it did you actually try? Uh, and patients are, I, I find folks are sometimes really surprised when we turn around and recommend an over-the-counter product, <laughs> but just the appropriate dosing or the appropriate length or something like that. Well, one of the more common categories that we're going to spend a lot of time on is allergy medications. Right. I'm, I would I would suggest that more people have allergy problems than don't have allergy problems, depending on the season. So that takes us into this episode medical trivia question listeners and the question is this how much do Americans spend on over-the-counter allergy medications in a year think about that I'll give you a little hint it's a big number we'll see what the answer is you'll have to stay to the end of the show to get that answer so join us back after the break here on Dr. Doctor And we are back today on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Angela Bowman, pharmacist extraordinaire who you met last week. If you didn't hear last week's episode, you really should go back and listen. We mostly highlighted Tylenol, NSAIDs, and Benadryl last week. This week we're diving into some of the many other over-the-counter products. We could talk forever. Folks who did listen last week will remember that Dr. Angela Bowman is working at the High Point University School of Pharmacy in North Carolina. She got her PharmD from Kansas School of Pharmacy, and she is helping us figure out these over-the-counter medicines. Angela, thanks for coming back for another show. Absolutely. Grateful to be here. Okay, so we've done so much last time. These are, I don't want to say tangential, but uh, they're not the big three. However, I, I get a lot of questions about this. I'm sure Chris does too. <laughs> Cough and cold medicines. Um, they're even in the news now, right? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, if a patient comes up to you at the pharmacy and say, hey, I've, I've, I've got, got a, a terrible cold, cold. What, what should I take? <laughs> what do I take? <laughs> what, what would you tell them? 
Yeah, well, I would say I'm sorry that's happening for start there, but uh, I would uh, I would direct them to uh, products related to what they want most like immediate. So most people have like congestion, and that's what they hate because they yeah. have like this headache, the sinus headache. Um, um, but other people really hate the cough. So depending on what it is, you have to start start yeah. one place. Um, we can talk about decongestants and stuff like that for headache. But if we're talking like cough and cold, more specific to the the area, there are two meds that I would make, like mention to them. One is uh, guafenicin, which is mucinex, and then the other is dextromethorphan, which is brand name Delsum. So those two are really the big names in cough and cold. So one, um, the mucinex thins your mucus and makes it easier to come up and cough up. So people are tired of trying forcefully to cough it up. This makes it easier. And then the dextromethorphan or the Delsum really suppresses the cough. Um, to make you not have um, as much of a, of a need. And that usually helps people sleep better if they're up all night coughing. Now, the last time I was on that aisle in the pharmacy, I think I noticed about 19 different Robitussins, uh, all <laughs> in a different color box. Um, what, what's the story with Robitussin for cough and cold? Um, so Robitussin, um, I guess I didn't come across that one um, when I was prepping. I'm pretty sure that one has dextromethorphan. Well, there's there's a DM that has dextromethorphan in it. Oh. Well, and it's uh, the idea combination products. Like yeah, Robitussin's yeah. a common brand, but there are so many combination products. How, yeah. how can you make heads or tails? Is it yeah. better to steer clear of the combinations or find the one with the most stuff in it? Maybe yeah. it'll work the best. <laughs> how, how do we figure it out? Yeah, so it it's a process, and yeah, I did double check. Robitussin is these two components, just another brand name. Um, it's been a couple of years, but I yeah. I definitely see that one a lot too. I just forgot what was in it. So combination products are just so prevalent with cough and cold. Sure. The reason being, I think, is everyone's trying to one up the other. Ooh, I got this component, or I got this new thing that'll help you with this other thing that you've never thought about treating before, even though we have. It just goes round and round. Um, like. Ideally, we would want people to use single agents that are targeted for the problem that they are um, wanting to address or that's most concerning. So for some people, they just really just want to get some sleep because they've been coughing all night. Mm -hmm. So we would want to just look something, look for something with just dextromethorphan. Why? Because the less meds you have to take in general, the better, less exposure to unneeded medications, which can cause side effects or interact with medications you're currently taking and it's less expensive. Um, but if they have multiple problems, then we can look for combo products, which can be helpful because they people people don't have to um, look for multiple things. They can sure. just have it in one product and not have to take as much volume or as many doses, which is usually a hindrance um, for people trying to um, just get some relief. So I don't want to say combo products are always um, terrible because they can be good, but just in this area, there's just too many. And yeah, there's often Benadryl added into there or mm -hmm. doxolamine. Um, to help you kind of be sedated a little bit and not have to think about your symptoms as much, or they'll add a medication like phenylephrine, and, and so things you just don't need. And so it's well, yeah. you know what we've probably accidentally stumbled upon is is really more um, sort of this combination of culture and expert marketing. You know, so no offense to the makers of these medications, but we say Tylenol. We don't say acetaminophen. Tylenol is a brand that's owned mm -hmm. by a company that has very great marketing through the last four or five generations, I guess. And the mm -hmm. same would be true of Robitussin. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm guilty, I think. Cough, Robitussin. Uh, so their marketing works. But we need to go just a little further and understand what's behind that label. Uh, what are we actually taking? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And a pharmacist can be great to help with yeah. that or any other healthcare professional. Um, but I feel like patients, once they become savvy, then they know, oh, all I need is this one drug. And then they can really find the product that works for them. If they don't want to, I don't really like drinking liquid when I have a cough and cold. I guess I just want to take a tablet. Um, and I won't feel compelled to if I know what I'm looking for. Yeah. And I can find really the product that, that works for me. Andrew, what's yeah. your favorite cough suppressant? Because this is right up your alley. Yeah, well, that's a great, <laughs> great question. So, well, I always reach for the prescription ones whenever uh, I'm seeing folks. So that's not fair. It, not fair. Yeah, over <laughs> the counter. Well, and and I guess that's, I mean, it depends. Everybody's got so much personal lived experience. But, I mean, that's w one of the questions that I always have is how how much does, does Delsum actually help, you uh -huh. know? Um, is it adequate, you know? I guess my sample size is probably different because I only see the people that it was in, inadequate for. Yeah. Um, 
But mm-hmm. I mean, that would be one of my questions too. Is you know, is is it enough to take it over the counter? I guess it, it uh, it's up to you how much you want to suffer or not. Yeah, suffer. you have to wonder. You could argue if your cough is so bad that you're willing to get in your car and drive to a pharmacy to get an over-the-counter product. Right. You might get more bang for the buck if you see your family get physician the prescription get the ones. prescription. Yeah, because there there are some stronger ones there. I guess kind of kind of along those lines for people who are taking the over-the-counter ones. Is there a big danger with Delsim or Mucinex mm. for taking too much? Yeah, so using too much, I'll start with Mucinex because it's really not that big of a concern. It's, so it thins the mucus in ways that are just more like biochemical and it's not going to be hitting any other receptors in your body. It's just meant to kind of target it in like a biochemical way. And if to be honest, there's some question about if that really works to the extent that we would want to, to like make a product and sell it because they have done studies and found that people who just drink more water actually get the same effect um, as, as mucinex, but not everyone can drink more water. You know, you have patients who have fluid restrictions right. um, and they can't do that. So and some people don't like drinking us, water, <laughs> to be fair. True. It's, it's <laughs> so, uh, so that one's not that much of a concern. Um, and we know that because water can be just as effective. Um, but for dextromethorphan, that acts on our brain um, in our medulla area to raise the threshold. So when we want to cough, we have a higher threshold we have to meet. Um, and because of its ac- action in our brains, um, it actually has been used as a, um, a drug of abuse, I guess you could say, or people try to get high on de- dextromethorphan. Mm-hmm. It's called robo-tripping. Um, not exactly sure the mechanism of how it I wonder it, if Robitussin branded that one. I, I doubt, somehow I doubt <laughs> it. Uh. Well, I don't, I, there's certain slang with some of these things that we know. Robo-tripping is one. Well, um, that's a word I learned today. That's new. Yeah. <laughs> It, yeah, it's it does potentially some of the same pathways as like PCP, uh, um, which is a drug of abuse, um, wow. and ketamine, which used to be a drug of abuse, but now we have some uh, some medical uses for it. So, yeah, and that's obviously an issue because then people get addicted um, mm. to like that a euphoric effect, and they're you not know, using the drug appropriately. So, well, and and not strictly the cough and cold family, but you know the next door neighbor, decongestants. Right, mm-hmm. um, and we're talking about abuse uh, potential, so to speak. Um, can you tell us, maybe fill us in on some of the, I, I've been reading about decongestants in the news, and, and it's not for lack of other news, it appears. <laughs> what, what should we know about the controversy with the decongestants, and if I mm-hmm. need one, what should I get? Yeah, I've been reading about that in the news as well. So decongestants essentially were alleviating inflammation, um, which could block some sinus and nasal passages and that causes um, that causes issues. So we relieve the inflammation by constricting the blood vessel. So it's not necessarily direct of the problem, it's like indirect, but um, targeting the symptom of something. So there's two basic ones for like taking something by mouth and that's um, one phenylephrine, which is brand name, um, neosinephrine or sometimes Sudafed, although Sudafed, I most commonly associate the other decongestant, which is Sudafedrin. Um, so phenylephrine and Sudafedrin. Phenylephrine, I think, has been in the news the most because the FDA came out and said that we don't think this drug is effective um, wah, and wah, wah. essentially we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't be using it. That is a buzzkill for everybody who just bought a whole carton of that stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, how can how can it be ineffective if it's been out for so long? What's the story? Well, yeah, that's a that's a that's a <laughs> interesting question. So I read up a little bit on the history. I mean, I was taught in school that it wasn't effective, and I should recommend pseudoephedrine for most people. So I it was known in the in the medical and pharmacy communities for a while. The question of should it be removed from over the counter is is involves the process of appealing for that and um, making sure the FDA understands and has data to support that decision. Mm. So from my understanding, there have been pharmacists and or doctors who have petitioned and said, we don't think that this should even be an option because my patients are buying it and they're wasting money or it's not working, et cetera. And there have, so there was appeals throughout the years. I don't know if they didn't have enough evidence. I don't know if the FDA was busy with other stuff and they couldn't get to it. I mean, we've had several issues that the FDA has had to address um, from opioid crisis to COVID to, you know, just everything. So it could be arguably on the back burner, but regardless, it is frustrating because you think if their product is there, it must work. Someone must have checked that. Mm. Um, But uh, because it involves regulation, that makes things slower and because 
their competing priorities in healthcare. I think that made it slower, but it's just not as powerful as pseudoephedrine and I guess not even at the level to where we can recommend it for general use. So. Well, and pseudoephedrine is not strictly over-the-counter either. Right. Is that right? That's one of the behind... Is that mm-hmm. the only behind-the-counter, over-the-counter medicine? Are there others? There are other behind-the-counter medications. And I have to think, you know, when we talked in the first episode about approval processes, I have to think that a drug is trying to get over the counter when they make that a, a application and the and the FDA makes it makes the designation of okay we're going to partially approve this we're going to make it behind the counter um, for whatever xyz reason so there are behind the counter drugs and pseudofed is pseudofed or pseudoephedrine is one mm-hmm. and the reason being though for for this to be behind the counter is because it um, can be used to uh, make methamphetamine as sure. a precursor so in 2005 there was the compact Combat Methamphetamine Act. Methamphetamine Act. Um, so that really required all pseudoephedrine to be behind the counter, and it required proof of um, proof of your identity, so we could track how much people were buying, and there were limits set on how much you could get per day and per month. And we have a whole tracking system that all the pharmacies in the state are required to participate in. But so back to, to the to the basics. Yeah. If you feel clogged up and nothing is coming out. Uh, and you're feeling that pressure and that discomfort, basic pseudoephedrine is a good choice. Um, oh, yeah, it works very well. Yeah. It's, it works very well. Um, just don't make mess with it. And, uh, <laughs> and it's a component, and also, to Andrew's point, it's a component to a lot of other combination products. Um, they'll mix yes, pseudoephedrine. Yes, it's, it's honestly, to me, the most I see it is with other allergy products. Um, yeah. So like Claritin D, um, Allegra D. It's true that like uh, it could be with... Um, some of the other cough cold products, but I, I think that I see most often it with allergy products. What are the big um, side effects to watch for or dangers apart from abuse with pseudoephedrine? Sure. I think the biggest one I remember is insomnia and this is a stimulant Mm. and how it works is it constricts your blood vessels by pumping out the the norepinephrine from your cells so that they can start working on your blood vessels. So norepinephrine is a, is a, a catecholamine, it's a stimulant, it's get your sympathetic nerve system going. So that can keep you up at night. And I remember the first time I ever took it as a technician, I don't know why my boss pharmacist didn't tell me, don't take it, it's eight o'clock at night, but I took it, didn't sleep at all, all night. It just kept me up. So that's a big side effect. Um, depending on the duration and what product you get, you wanna take it just to where that drug is probably wearing off or has worn off by the time you go to bed. So if it's 12 hour product, don't take it any later than 12 p.m. If it's a four to six hour, take it no later than like two mm. or 3 p.m. And some people will be more sensitive and they really have to take it early in the morning and no, no other time. Mm. Um, so insomnia is one, anxiety due to like that um, stimulant effect that can kind of get people a little too ramped up. And then it can increase your blood pressure because it's not only constricting the blood vessels in your face, it can sometimes do it throughout your body. So if you have uncontrolled um, high blood pressure, you don't want to add insult to injury and you just want to find other ways to relieve your your congestion. Yeah, good points all. Um, you know, we should probably, you mentioned allergy medications, and these are all in the same section of the pharmacy. Uh, in fact, it can be overwhelming just to walk down that aisle. But so cough and cold things to mm-hmm. suppress the cough, decongestants to try to open things up if you're feeling mm-hmm. uh, congested. But what about that category of allergy medications? Uh, I would have to imagine, I'm sure you see this in your practice, more people suffer with seasonal allergies probably than do not. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, we talk about seasonal allergies. I had somebody ask me the other day, like, what happens if you get them all the time? I'm like, <laughs> you can get more than one season. They can be year-round. Right. Seasonal's kind of a misnomer almost. I mean, I, I have no idea, but I think it'd be interesting to know, be a good trivia question, how much money is spent annually in over-the-counter allergy medicines. That's a, um, yeah, a yeah. lot, I think. It has to be a lot. So what do listeners need to know about over-the-counter allergy medicines as a category? I think that this category, I, I feel, is has grown so much, and I, there's better solutions than ever that are affordable uh, um, and lots of options. So I, I like this category. I think I'm always happy to answer those because I feel like I can give someone some relief that's pretty hmm. consistent. So the first category are um, in intranasal corticosteroids, so some sort of nasal spray. It's a steroid. A lot of us know about steroids with like prednisone 
or hydrocortisone cream, but these are um, intranasal, so things like fluticasone, which is brand name Flonase, triamcinolone, which is brand name Nasacort, and budesonide, which is brand name Rhinocort. Um, really, they all are like the first line or the first thing you want to go for if you're having nasal um, or eye or you know congestion type symptoms that you're pretty sure related to allergies. They work in a complex way, but down to the cellular level, they're getting rid of all that that allergy cascade that's going on. So that's a really good one. And I feel like it's pretty um, simple to apply if you apply it correctly. Um, the other big category are antihistamines. So blocking the histamine component that is part of the allergy cascade. And here we're being selective if we're using drugs like Claritin, Allegra, Zyrtec. Those all block the histamine receptor that's specific to allergies. <coughs> They're very safe to take like every day, both either the intranasal steroids or the antihistamines. And they work really well for a lot of people. And as soon as they go off of them, they know, they can tell that <laughs> they're having all their symptoms again. So they're pretty powerful. Is there one antihistamine for allergies that is better than the others? Uh -huh. There's three, uh, at least three, I think maybe even uh, more now of, of antihistamines that folks will take sometimes they'll take them kind of indefinitely for allergies. Do you find that one has a better hit rate? Were you guys taught anything in that way? Yeah, so when we when we learned it in, in pharmacy school, essentially I think Allegra has a slight competitive advantage in terms of its, how well it manages symptoms, but they're all pretty equal. You find the one that you will take and take consistently. Uh, Zyrtec is probably one of the most common. The thing with Zyrtec is it's the one that causes the most sedation or you know drowsiness mm. and that's just based on its structure it still is selective and all that but we talked um earlier about like antihistamines can cause drowsiness if they're not selective this one just is the one that is most likely to cause it of the selective and so that risk is also a little bit higher in those who are elderly so I just generally say um, try Allegra or Claritin first because I don't want the patient to have like allergy or I don't want them to be drowsy uh, starting off and having a bad experience because I feel like one will work. But really any of them work and um, they have a new like selective med called Zizol. Again, it's just someone, everyone's just trying to be the new kid yeah. on the block and something else to appeal to whatever. <laughs> it's probably more expensive. You probably don't need it. If you've tried all other three, then yeah, sure. Try Zizol. <laughs> like, by then you should probably talk to your doctor. But Well, I'm old enough uh, to remember when those came on the market as prescription medications. Ah, uh, yeah. And it was a big deal because prior to that, there weren't a lot of great choices. You know, you had steroids, you had prescription steroids. You had Benadryl, as we've talked about in a previous episode, but you know your tool bag was really pretty limited. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a non-drowsy antihistamine, so to speak, comes about, and it, it was life-changing for, uh, I think, for providers and oh, yeah. and patients alike. And then to move to the over-the-counter, making it less expensive and more accessible, you know, for allergy sufferers, that's that could be life-changing. Well, and I think one of the things that surprises a lot of patients, at least that I talk to, is that the bulk of allergy treatment is over the counter now. <laughs> you know, yeah. we still have some things that are prescription, um, you know, for people who are doing desensitization therapy mm. or or the Montelukast, the Singulaire, um, or steroids here and there. But, you know, the, the foundation is all over the counter. So I think a lot of times people will look at over-the-counter allergy medicine as, you know, give me the good stuff. Subpar. I, I don't want this. Like, no, honestly, like, let's okay. let's get a good bedrock of the over-the-counter yeah. stuff before launching into the stuff that's probably even got a lower hit rate in some ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one, one thing I, I – it's kind of related to this section but also to the decongestants we just talked about. Um, some people have like, I, I have really bad eye allergies and there's a good mm. uh, safe medication to use every day for that. But some people also will use eye versions of decongestants, which are different than the, than the ones you take by mouth. Like we mentioned, phenylephrine, Sudafed. There's ones for your eyes, which are like oxymetazoline, nefazoline, which are like Visine, um, Nafcon. Those, um, they don't target the allergy pathway. They're just there to constrict blood vessels and to get you feeling good fast. But mm. if you use those consistently, you can have what's called rebound congestion, which are where you have worse congestion than you did before. And it's persistent and it's not going away. And your body just, I feel like it almost has this tolerance and then it has this rebound effect. And it's kind of 
un unclear like exactly why that happens, but you can prevent it, and that's by just using as little as possible or using it only for like um, a couple days and then going off of it. Um, some people don't always realize that. This might be a good chance too to to make a comment about Afrin, because mm. I feel like that's one that's you know gets a lot of uh, of attention in its own right for also kind of having that rebound effect. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Sure. So Afrin is oxymetazoline, and that's the nasal decongestant spray. So if I was using Flonase and I just felt like it wasn't quite doing it, I might add some Afrin or I might try Afrin first. I think they sell one of these at the Dollar Tree. I saw a lot of patients who would just buy it really cheap at the Dollar Tree. Um, but yeah, essentially you're you're using it and, it and it works for a little bit and then it doesn't, but you just keep using more, but it's not actually treating anything. And um, they just think that more will, will help one day, maybe eventually. <laughs> I talk to some patients, they use it for years. And it's, yeah, again, it's a waste of your time, money, effort, all that stuff. And it's just because they're not meant to be taken chronically or all the, all the time, like the inhale, or the, excuse me, the nasal steroids or the antihistamines. Yeah, that's good, that's a good example. Well, another, another kind of transition for, as far as uh, antihistamine, um, medicines for for reflux uh, heartburn acid reflux I, I mean another example of it being a radical change when yeah. even when there was prescription medications the so-called h2 blockers yeah uh, again I'm old enough to remember when that just came in to the prescription territory and you know especially for primary care physicians who were seeing this all the time oh yeah I know that had to be that had to feel like a radical change in practice direction um, but that has to be one of the more commonly uh, obtained so. over-the-counter medications because so many people suffer. Well, and it makes you think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a, being a consumer. Oh, I, I was sent here by my wife to get some antihistamines. <laughs> uh, what kind would you like? Do you want Benadryl? Do you want Zyrtec? <laughs> Do you want Famotidine? These are all antihistamine right. actions. Can, maybe we, you can launch us into the, the heartburn section with the antihistamines and, and the PPI drugs. Sure. Yeah. And I've definitely had that husband come in for their wife and they're not quite sure what their wife has for. And yeah. they have to what call. are the symptoms, right? She has everything. Ah. <laughs> they're like, I don't know. I ran out the door. She just told me to grab it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the histamine blockers in this sense in the heartburn area are um, histamine 2 receptor blockers or H2RAs. And so histamine 1 had to do with, uh, with allergies. Histamine 2 has to do with um, other things, but in the gut specifically. Histamine 2 is responsible for signaling the production of acid and getting things going and getting your food processed. So H2RAs, um, drugs like famotidine or pepsid, um, ranitidine, which is brand name Zantac, those all selectively block that receptor in your stomach so that you don't have as much acid produced and you don't have as much heartburn or that um, that breakthrough of acid from your stomach refluxing up to your um, up to your um, esophagus. So and maybe it's worth though, pointing pointing out to yeah. listeners. Tums, it neutralizes acid. Tums too, yeah. Yeah, like you did in chemistry class. But these medications that you're talking about are actually making your body make less acid. Um, so much more yeah. powerful. Uh, but what about combining the over-the-counter H2 blockers, like the ones that you mentioned, with things like Tums and Rolaids and neutralizers? Yeah, that's that's completely fine. I think I could see that most often happening if someone had kind of chronic issues and they were for some reason um, like just having more heartburn than, than normal and then they knew they were going to go eat a meal that tends to Trigger. exacerbate yeah. their heartburn. They would yeah. maybe also take some, some Tums or some Rolaid. So you're right that those um, antacids, which are really first line for anyone who's having just a little bit of heartburn to try mm. and try an antacid, that's the first line because they have very minimal side effects. They're just meant to um, neutralize the acid in your stomach. Um, so yeah, those are very, a lot of different combos with there, but de essentially, yeah, just in the moment use, you're having heartburn, it'll work very quickly and only work for a little bit. Sure. But um, the H2RAs block the signal, and then there's the most kind of invasive or severe, whatever you want to call it, um, and acid or, um, or heartburn medication is more specific, called the proton pump inhibitors or the PPIs. So these irreversibly block these little acid pumps we have in our gut called parietal cells. And so they're taking them out and they're not coming back and <laughs> they work very effectively. And that I think is probably the biggest breakthrough with those going over the counter, like you mentioned, 
people really can fix their heartburn quickly wow. um, and effectively. You have to take it around 30 to 60, 30 to 60 minutes before you eat because that gives it time for the drug to absorb, to get where it needs to go. And then when you're ready to eat, the cells start wanting to start pumping acid. They're just they're just out before well, you can do Angela, that. Angela, I feel like we should probably spend a little more time on those two different categories. So maybe this is a good time to take a break. So listeners will be back on Dr. Doctor with more about antacids and proton pumps uh, in just a few minutes after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back on Dr. Doctor with our very special guest, uh, Angela Ballman, expert in all things pharmacy. And let's, uh, w- where we took the break, we were talking about the, not the antacids, but the categories of medications that make you make less, uh, I think we could say. Uh, and you were just going through those two different but important categories. <clears throat> so maybe you could summarize that for patients and let's give them the names of each category so we can be clear about it. Sure. So there are the, I guess, more simple H2RAs. They're blocking a histamine uh, receptor in our stomach specifically. And those are drugs like famotidine, which is brand name Pepsid, Mm. reninidine, which is brand name Zantac. And then one I don't think I mentioned, which is cimetidine, which is brand name Tagamet. I think Tagamet was the first one to come out years and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then uh, with your with your more invasive or complicated mm. category, um, they're the proton pump inhibitors or the PPIs, and those completely block the cells that make acid in your stomach. So those are drugs like omeprazole, which is brand name Prilosec, right. um, esomeprazole, which is brand name Nexium, and lansoprazole, which is brand name Prevacid. So they all end in um, azole which is helpful. Oh. And they're all over the counter and they're just different. Mm-hmm. So how should um, the the consumer choose between all of those? Or is there a rule of thumb? I would say there's a rule of thumb which for which one to try first. If you're having pretty mild or you know kind of predictable or infrequent heartburn, um, it's best to go for one that's less invasive or less um, permanent, I guess you could say. So the H2RAs, things like a gravapepsid, um, safer, um, the effects are more reversible. You're not irreversibly inhibiting something. Um, so when you stop it, things will go back to normal, um, which may be what you want if you've resolved the cause of the heartburn. So if you're having more mild symptoms, go for one of those. Um, if you're having more severe symptoms that really interfere with your daily activities, quality of life, et cetera, um, then going for a proton pump inhibitor, um, really any of them are, are effective. The Nexium, which is kind of a, um, a specific form of the Prilosec, they really both work equally. Mm. Um, one potentially just might work two or three minutes faster, but um, for the price difference, uh, I don't think it's very uh, a very big deal. So either one, whatever's most um, cost effective. And that one, um, as we mentioned, you got to take before a meal, ideally like an hour before a meal for it to work versus like the... Um, things like Pepsid or the H2RAs, you can take like half an hour before a meal or really when you start eating. So and convenience might come into play. Risks and side effects with these mm. medicines, anything to watch out for? Yeah, so since with the H2RAs, we're just so selectively blocking what we need to block, there really are not any side effects except for the general like, um, you know, uh, burping or gas or whatever, but that's all part of heartburn anyway. I think that's probably why they were reported. Really no side effects that I would tell someone about. They're pretty benign. However, the proton pump inhibitors, because they are so powerful and because they work in such an irreversible way, there are side effects more on the long term than on the short term. So with that, we've there's been a lot of controversy. At first, people thought they were safe. Let's use them all the time. No problem. But then some data started coming out related to what they do with um, absorption. So we need an acidic environment to absorb certain things. Um, one of those being, um, it turns out, um, certain vitamins like B12 and magnesium are not as easily absorbed if you don't have that acidic, acidic environment chronically. And then calcium as well um, has been cited as not being absorbed to the extent that we want, and that has an effect on your bone mineral density. So the outcome or the long-term side effect would be not as strong of bones, and that can cause uh, fractures and things like that. Um, so before you're vitamin, on it for a long time, there's a point of a point of uh, thinking, I yeah. guess. you got to make a decision. Yeah. It's a pros and cons. It's not totally risk-free. 
No, and I think around three to four months of use, if they're gonna potentially be on it for longer, then you start having that discussion. Um, I will say that like, you should always let your doctor know if you're taking something over the counter day in and day out for that amount of time. And for some diseases, like the type of um, heartburn that really can kind of erode the, the esophagus, you have to take something that powerful and then you just try to deal with the side effects because if you don't take it, there's worse outcomes. So, so sometimes they're justified is what I'm trying to say. The other side effect um, potentially is increased risk of infections. Maybe these drugs affect our immunity, maybe, but most likely what they do is um, not kill the bacteria that we have in our gut, which the acid is meant to kill. So we don't have the acid anymore to kind of like burn up the bacteria, as I would say, in our stomach, and that bacteria can then get absorbed or affect our other GI tract, and that can cause infections. Um, so, so those are the two biggest risks. I'm sure there's some others, um, but those are the ones that have the most data right now. When, I guess kind of moving on a little bit, when you have someone come in maybe and say, hey, uh, really constipated, kind of full of it, um, hopefully they'd stop and ask for advice. What would you tell them to pick up over the counter? For constipation, it would depend on what their, what, what the progression has been and, and what they're really looking for. So. I mean, sometimes people think that they have to go to the bathroom a certain number of times or a certain right. day because that's how they've gone for years and years and they actually don't. Like there's not necessarily a certain prescribed regularity for everyone. So clarifying that and making sure they're okay with that is what I usually start with. I ask what they've tried before, um, but if they're there for a medication and they're like, I wanna go as soon as possible, then we just try and talk about what their options are. So the things that are like, I wanna go as soon as possible are things like suppositories and enemas, which are not as fun, um, but those work the quickest. So like glycerin suppositories or um, mineral oil enemas. Um, aside from that, the next most quickest relief would be things like uh, stimulants. So those are things like Senna and Bisacodal. What those do is like, punch, I call it punch the stomach to start going and moving. Um, and you don't want to use those for too long because the stomach can only take so much innervation and then it kind of forgets what to do on its no. own. Um, and then there are the, the routine daily things that I would think are the safest and I would probably encourage the patient to just wait and, and use rather than need immediate effect. And so those are things like um, fiber, psyllium, uh, Metamucil I think is the brand name for that, or stool softeners, um, things like Docusate which usually is brand name Colace, not always. Sometimes <laughs> Colace is like the bisacodal, which is the stimulant. Um, and then things like hyper, they're called hyperosmotics, so like Miralax, they're, they're drawing in water to, to help the, the stool kind of pass a little bit more easily. So those are kind of the general areas I would tell a patient about. You know, Andrew, I don't know about you, my bias is of all of the common complaints, constipation always bothers me when I'm listening to it from a patient because I'm thinking, you're an otherwise healthy person, why are you constipated? Right. Is there something else going on? Um, you know, do you have a, a giant tumor in your abdomen? Right. Do, do you have some serious functional problem? And so if there was one that I would say don't ignore, uh, oh, yeah. see a doctor, it's going to be constipation that doesn't quickly and easily respond to all of the things that Angela just mentioned. Well, it's kind of funny. I, I use all of these frequently for folks. And um, I spend most of my time trying to convince people they're constipated. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a rare person who'll tell me, hey, I'm really backed up. Most uh, of the time, they'll have abdominal pain. Yeah. Ultimately, it's functional constipation. But it's, uh, you know, everybody's so different on that. Sure. I, I guess the flip side of that, something that I hear even more often for patients trying stuff over the counter is diarrhea. Mm. What, what should we think about the over-the-counter options for diarrhea? The biggest over-the-counter product is Imodium, which is the brand name for loperamide. Um, there's also Pepto-Bismol, which is um, bismuth subsalicylate, but I feel like loperamide and Imodium, like that, that is just the best fix. And um, many of us know, like if we are on an opioid, it kind of makes us constipated. So it's using that same mechanism, only it's not an opioid, it's just a very, very specific type of um, activator of those receptors that helps just um, stop our stomach up, give it more time to absorb some water so it doesn't go out in a diarrhea fashion and get things kind of figured out. So 
Well, pyramide's the best. Um, the other thing I really um, always stress is like, make sure that they are staying hydrated mm. if they have diarrhea, even while they're taking this. Um, and the pyramide, how you can take it, you can take it after each loose stool up to a certain maximum amount. You kind of load up on it and then you can take it after each loose stool. So like every time you take it, take some water because <laughs> you just lost some. Um, so yeah, that's what I usually tip, um, recommend. Okay, very good. And any, I guess for the constipation and diarrhea categories, any pearls as far as, oh, be sure you don't do this or don't take Imodium, you know. With for, something else. Yeah, combination, yeah. side effects. So for the constipation meds, actually the mineral oils and the fiber can actually prevent you from absorbing other meds that you're taking. So usually we want people to take everything together because then they're more likely to take it and it's easier, but um, not with the certain, not with certain constipation meds. So fiber, I mean, it just kind of binds things up and some fibers form this gel that kind of just move along with the stool and that's how it works, but it takes your meds with it and then your meds don't get absorbed. So mm. depending on the product, you just want to separate it. You want to take your meds and let those get absorbed and then you can take your fiber or vice versa. Um, usually you have to wait longer if you take your fiber first. You have to wait longer for that all to process to go and, and take your meds. So I usually say the meds first, but the mineral oil as well, it's kind of acting like as a fatty coating, which just covers things and then it covers your meds and your meds kind of float along and they never get into your system. So that's a big one that people don't always recognize, but not it's not for everything. Like docusate, it's not a problem. You can take it with everything. Um, with the loperamide, the anti-diarrheal, that can also be abused. There's not like a catchy name for its abuse, but people also take it because it has a small link to the euphoric effects that the opioids, opioids offer. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, and so people take a lot of that to try and get high, and um, it actually can mess with your heart and prolong a certain interval in your heart that can cause an arrhythmia that's life-threatening. So that one has a cardiac risk associated with overusing it. So that one um, we've seen a couple times since that's become more popular recently. I feel like these things come in waves. People try things and they let them go and they try them again. So it's that, that one. Tick tock, if you ask me. <laughs> 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 right? Kids these days. You know, Angela, maybe in our last five minutes here, um, there's so many things to talk about. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the topicals. You know, there's different creams, aloe vera, steroids, antifungals. Yes, yeah. our, our founding co-host, Dr. Tom McGovern, would hate it if we omitted skin. That's right. Um, that would be bad. <laughs> That's right. If, if a patient's coming in with a rash, how, how do they figure out what they should do? Yeah, we, we got to kind of see what the rash looks like. And, you know, we like I mentioned, we learned self-care and how to, in general, tell if something is more of a, um, of a fungal infection, ringworm, um, things like that, yeast infection, whatever, versus like um, a reaction to something like atopic dermatitis and they have itching and inflammation rather than um, more of a, an infection going on. So if it's a, like we think it's a fungal infection, um, we have antifungals for that. Um, Clotrimazole or Lotrim is a very common one. Um, Ketoconazole or, my, or Nizurol is another one. So the Clotrimazole is more for like on the skin, um, the athlete's foot, ringworm, things like that, versus like Ketoconazole is like the fungal infections that you have on your head. So people have a lot of dandruff that can be due to uh, a fungal infection or excuse me, like fungal colonization. And so those products are certainly very effective. Um, and then if things don't get better in a certain amount of time, we go and refer to figure out what's the issue and if they need something stronger. Um, if it's something like inflammation, itching related to a reaction, um, potentially allergic reaction, there's hydrocortisone there. Um, I think the brand name for that is like cortisone 10. Yeah. Um, this is the only um, steroid to my knowledge that's over the counter. <laughs> and it's only in a 1% version. So steroids can be very potent and powerful. So this is like the, the max we're willing to go <laughs> in terms of putting steroids out there is a 1%. And we should only recommend it for a max of seven days um, if, we're, if we're advising someone on that because overuse can thin the skin. It can cause some sensitivity. Again, these are just powerful drugs. So that one is there though for people who need it. And yeah, it's very beneficial like we talked earlier. Um, sometimes you don't need the whole prescription steroid and all that risk and stuff and, and exposure. You just need a little bit. So um, those are the big ones I think of. Um, aloe vera is really good for sunburn. It's not probably going to help you completely <laughs> escape the pains of sunburn, but it's, it's helped me a lot. And it's 
very safe to use. There's like very, very low side effect risk. Man, I love it. Seems like there's an infinite number of things, but I think this is a pretty good, at least 30,000 foot view of uh, over-the-counter medicines. Absolutely. Angela, thank you for your your patience with our questions, and thank you for your expertise and your willingness to, to help guide listeners through the complicated waters of over-the-counter medications. I guess, as far as resources, what's the best place to go to if you have specific questions? I would say, aside from your pharmacist, your local pharmacist, <laughs> who hopefully you know and trust, um, I would say the FDA has a pretty good page, pages of resources partially uh, like what I use to kind of reference today's discussion um, on like over the, over the counter um, uses more specific to certain categories. So I would check the FDA first. I don't think the CDC and those other more general like knowledge bases have stuff on over the counter. I think FDA is the biggest one, but the, really your, your medication that you get over the counter should have everything either on the label or in that hmm. monograph that we talked about in the first episode, that big, piece of paper and maybe you can use that to have more informed questions and you feel confident to call your pharmacist or call any pharmacy and say I have this over-the-counter drug you know do you, would you tell me um, if this is safe or not so those are the two biggest places I guess the pharmacist and then FDA's resources I love it. we'll leave it there Angela Bowman pharmacist extraordinaire thanks for joining us here on Dr. Doctor thank you thank Angela. You so much And we're back here on Dr. Doctor with the answer to the medical trivia question about over-the-counter allergy medicines. Uh, absolutely. And the question is, how much do we Americans spend annually on over-the-counter allergy medications? Not all over-the-counter medications. Uh, that would be an interesting trivia question. But how much do we spend just on allergy medications for those pesky symptoms that many, many of us get? I'm and seeing a big number in my head. It's big. According to, I believe it's the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology. Those guys are experts on these matters. True. They say $4.5 billion, with a B, dollars every year goes into these medications. Yeah, it's really incredible. I mean, so many people have these issues, and having the over-the-counter products are good. That's a lot of money. So, I mean, you want to be a wise consumer. If you're going to be spending a significant amount of money, you want to be getting the right stuff. So, Well, when I hear that number, suddenly I'm thinking, you know, there's a Walgreens and a CVS on every corner. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah. Just on sinus medicines alone, there's $4.5 billion in revenue to be made. Those guys don't seem to be hurting too badly. <laughs> you know, they're doing okay. They're and everywhere. Part of it is the allergy medicines for sure. I mean... Hopefully, hopefully these shows kind of help listeners, give them an idea of where to start, at least. We talked about a lot of medications on this episode. In between the two episodes, we've really covered probably the entire over-the-counter aisles uh, at most large pharmacies. I mean, thinking back, we did we did cough and cold things, yeah. very, very common. We did allergy, the $4.5 billion. Uh, we talked about decongestants. Um, we talked about one of my favorite categories, the reflux, which is so confusing. Yeah. And she did a great job breaking that down for us and to the more invasive sort of turn off your acid production, maybe permanently, to just neutralize your acid, to just block the amount that you're making. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, and then you forced her to talk about constipation. Got to get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. You know, that's what I say. And it's we, very important. <laughs> and so all of these things, there's a time and a place I guess for our top three takeaways, you know, the biggest thing mm. that I think folks should consider is when to go to the doctor. Mm. And and I don't know what you, you tell folks, Chris. I mean, when in doubt, ask, first of all. Yeah. Ask your pharmacist. Call your doctor. If you're considering it, I would call. I mean, just to be safe. In general, if somebody's dealing with something over the counter and you're an adult and it's mild in your eyes, you can probably go for three, four days without any trouble. Yeah. If it's something you've never had before, or it's a little kid and they can't tell you everything, I would look at that a lot more suspiciously. Um, any new symptom you have, you probably the first time you want to get it checked out. Is this heartburn or is this my heart? It's hard to tell that over the phone. You know, it really is. So yeah. if it's not something you're familiar with, I wouldn't hesitate to get appropriate medical advice. You know, when I hear you say that, I have to add in, if, if you have... Uh, the relationship with a physician such that you can't call their office yeah. and get that advice 
you need a new physician. Yeah. <laughs> if you get a voicemail and we'll call you back sometime yeah. or you get a phone tree and nobody calls you back, I because mean. This is what primary care physicians are trained to do, yeah. to, to triage and to listen to these problems and decide, you know, big deal, not a big deal. So, you know, if you're in a relationship with, you know, maybe a, a large practice or something somewhere in the country, listeners, and you don't have that kind of relationship, you should get it because that's the way it's supposed to work. It is important. And so I, don't don't overlook things and yeah. think that it's only over the counter. But on the second second point, a lot of times we'll prescribe over the counter <laughs> stuff. So over just the because it's can over be the counter right? is good. Yeah, especially yeah, it, for allergies. In some cases, it's the best there is. Yeah, uh, you don't need a prescription that the over the counter. I think a lot of us have a bias against it because I didn't have to go get a prescription for it. Oh yeah. Um, or now, folks have tried one of the over the counter things, and you know allergies are a great example. I'd like you to try the nose spray and the pill together and yeah. see what happens. Now we should probably point out where on the one hand we're saying just because it's over the counter doesn't mean it's not effective. It also doesn't mean that it couldn't be dangerous That's right. if taken improperly. So remember that as well. And I think for the third takeaway for me, it was this idea, and we referenced it some in our last episode, Use the pharmacist expertise. Yeah. You know, if you have a question and the pharmacist is there, take advantage of their expertise. They have years of training. They are a wealth of knowledge. What about the, the blood pressure medicine I take? Can I take this decongestant with it? Just as one example. Oh, but yeah. call on that expertise. They are experts and professionals. They're trained to help. They want to help. Well, on that note, we hope everybody enjoyed this show. I sure did. I did as well. And thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this episode and all of our episodes at our website, drdoctor.org. You can click on Episode Archive, and you can hear every one of our more than 300 episodes if you want to. And we even have a video version. For folks who love YouTube, <laughs> you can find us on YouTube. Easiest way is to go into drdoctor.org, click on the YouTube link. We also have an area where you can submit a question or an idea for a future show. Until that future show, I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.